1: On 882 6PR, Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan.
0: Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Barra and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, my guest in this episode uh, was WA's uh, Chief Scientist for 2018. Uh, he's a Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University and by his own admission, uh, a professional rat bag and stirrer, but so many other things which we'll get into over the course of the next hour or so. Uh, so it's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome Peter Newman. G'day. How are you going? Pretty good. Um, which of those titles are you most proud of, being a
2: professional uh, probably rat Probably the bag? rat bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I'm uh, uh, very happy to be a professor. Yeah. I never thought I would be. Um, that's quite a recognition to mm. get. Uh, but I've had a lot of recognition lately, which mm. probably means I'm getting old. And <laughs> it, it uh, you know, like the AO, oh yes. order of Australia, yeah, do I get that? You know, so um, you can be a rat bag for most of your life in terms of stirring things up and people don't like it. Mm. But after a while, they see you were right. Yeah. So you just say, oh. He needs some sort of award. (laughs) So I've been given all kinds of stuff. Specifically, that was for your contributions to urban
0: design and sustainable transport, particularly related to the saving and rebuilding
2: of Perth's rail system. Yes, and that's a good story because it's 40 years ago when I did that and uh, started that journey, turned me into a transport expert, and I'm now... Running the world's transport. Uh, <laughs> that's what I say. Because I'm the chair of the IPCC, the UN's climate change body. Yeah. Uh, chair of their committee, their chapter that we're doing on transport. Mm. So I now lead the world on transport. You Literally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're not overstating that. No, no. That's for, that's <laughs> for real. Um,
0: and I suppose when you are in that field, you do annoy a lot of people. Because oh, not everyone. Perhaps they either don't believe what you're saying or they don't want to believe. I don't no. want to take on what you're saying.
2: No, when I uh, uh, I stood up and said, you're closing the Fremantle Railway? What are you doing that for? Uh, and uh, everybody said, oh, look, you know, you can't really compete with the car and Perth's not a railway town. Uh, it, it's it's uh, time to close it down. Mm. And, and when was this? 1979, they closed it. And uh, I started the Friends of the Railway mm. and said... We've got to do something about this. Mm. Now, I'd never done anything like that. Mm. Uh, I was an elected Fremantle councillor. Yep. And I felt a bit responsible that I should be doing something. So I learned on the job of what it is to be an activist and a stirrer. Yeah. I learned how you can win. Yeah. Especially how you use the media. Mm. You boys were very helpful at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and y- you, you well, know. y- y- you're known
0: as, as someone who is good talent. Oh, use, is that right? You know, I to know, use a, a a media phrase, which means you're, you know, you're you're a good communicator. You, um, if if you're going to be on TV or radio about an issue like that, then yeah, you'll say something that's probably quotable.
2: Yes, uh, well, we did dramatise it. No yeah. question about that. You uh, played, we, you you played it. Yeah, we did, and uh, we we won it, mm. uh, which is the best thing. Mm. And then I realised you could win things mm. if you got out there and you knew you were right. Mm. Now you look at the at Perth today. Where would we be without the trains? Mm. We certainly wouldn't have Optus Oval working well. No, you know, it's an extraordinary thing to go to the footy here on the train and just have everybody so pleased they can get there so easily and quickly. Yeah, it is a delight to go on the train. I went on it this morning with my grandson. Yeah, and he loves it. Yeah, uh, but he's only one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know this this is a, a great legacy i think yeah but we won it it wasn't just me by any means but i led the charge and uh and did a lot of the media work. yeah and we had a very big community reaction to that and we've done ever since yeah. probably five or six elections where we mm. put it on the agenda and we keep winning mm. people drive this and you can change the system if you get people behind it who know what they want yeah. because it's right well, in terms of our
0: performance on a global scale, I mean, you, you mentioned before you're, you're basically like the, the the fat controller of the world. <laughs> 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 Never mind the island of Sodor. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm using language that you can use with your one-year-old grandson right, when he yes. gets into Thomas the Tank Engine eventually. Here, but uh, uh, yes. um, how do we go in in Perth? Obviously, we've got things happening with uh, new rail lines here now, but how do yeah. we go on on a world scale in terms of you know having that as part of our transport infrastructure?
2: Well, we can say that we probably led the charge of what we are now calling the second rail revolution Mm. around the world because everybody's now building railways. Mm. But in 1979, when we brought it back, uh, it was very run down, the system. Um, And like most places, their railways were all running down, but they didn't do anything about it. But ours was closed, so we Mm. had to do something. Mm. Um, And that meant that we were a bit ahead of the the pack. And we started electrifying the system, then extending to the north, extending to the south, into areas that people, all the experts said, it'll never work. But it did. That caught on. I was able to use my media skills, if you like, my communication skills, to help tell the rest of Australia about that, Mm -hmm. to write books about it, so America learnt about that. I took the message of the revival of Perth Rail's system around the world. Mm. And it's uh, it's it's not as though there, there wasn't other things happening because the community was demanding it. You see, in 1979 was the second world oil crisis. And the yep. price of oil went up from, well, it tripled. And so everybody was worried then. Yep. What do we do about this? You know, you can't just have cars and buses. So... We uh, we did show that there was an alternative, mm. and I was very pleased that this continues, and at every election there's there's a another train extension you can go for, and now we've got eight billion dollars in Metronet, which is extraordinary really to mm. think that uh, we just 40 years ago we were not going to have any rail system. Mm. So we've gone from seven million passengers a year to seventy million passengers a year on the train. That's as fast a, a turnaround as any system in the world. Uh, we've gone into a bit of a plateau on that, but that's because we didn't keep building. This new Metronet will now get us back into a, a rapid growth It'll phase. A positive growth phase, <clears throat> yeah. Mm.
0: Where, where does this uh, this activism, and I'm not sure that the tag, um, as it's commonly known, necessarily fits with you, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but uh, where, where does the, the activist come from? Can you trace it back to um, to something in your childhood that you'd latched onto that you thought, that's a really important cause, I want to be a part of that?
2: It's hard to say. Um I was born in Perth. Uh, I was the start of the baby boom. Three days after the Hiroshima bomb was dropped, I was born. I just imagine wow. my, my mother giving birth <laughs> into that environment. Yeah. You know, I often think about that now, and that that whole move of young parents to have kids. She had five. Yeah. So I grew up in a very close family, very secure family. Um, I moved around a bit before we came back to to live in Perth, but Perth was always home. Mm. So this was my place, and I was very proud of it. My parents always talked about it when we lived in the east and I grew up over there. Um, So when we came back in in my teens, um, I was very delighted to be in this special place. It was special. And when you really belong to a place, you want to make it something to be proud of. So I suppose my family helped a lot in getting a sense of security and that I could do things mm. because I knew who I was and I came from a background of privilege, if you like. We weren't wealthy, but mm. we had everything that a kid would need. So I went to university. Mm. And then I found in the 60s, there was a lot of people saying, we've got to change the world. And then I discovered in 1970 that the world was in trouble environmentally. I did hear about greenhouse. I did hear about problems of pollution and so on. And I got involved in this environmental movement. That really formed me because I think I then knew that I could bring science to bear on that. I could bring a sense of change that was needed uh, from a place where I wasn't doing it for myself. Mm. I, I felt secure enough to say, look, I think I know what's right and wrong on this, and the pollution we're seeing is ridiculous, and we've got to fix things. And we've won a lot of battles in that environmental area. You know, the... Everyone attacks the EPA and so on. But these guys around the world were set up in the 70s. We were one of the first to set up an EPA, Uh, have regulations and and, uh, proper assessment of projects. We do it well. I was on the EPA for a while. I know Mm. how hard it is, but it's a a terrific group. Now, that sort of thing, that gets you going. You realise you can do things and make a better world. So I've I've sort of just been taking one step at a time since the um I just I was just doing the maths then when you when you mentioned your your
0: birth date just after Hiroshima then yeah um the the sixties and seventies being a a young man and a university student. Mm. Um, I wasn't around then. Tell us what it was oh, like then, was being a, being a uni student in the yeah. in sixty seventies uh, Perth.
2: Was it? Oh, it was as terrific, wild as some really. of the documentaries might Look, uh, suggest. It was wild as you wanted it to be, and yeah. I I wasn't of a character that that was wild in terms of nightlife and things. Yeah, um, because I was a sportsman as well. Right, I went to university to play cricket and football. <laughs> yeah, I played cricket with Rod Marsh and Donna Verarity and Tony Mann, and all these superstars. Yeah. And it was fabulous playing cricket and football. I played for the state amateurs, and, and uh, you know I, I was about to <clears throat> get, uh, get into Claremont back in, uh, the sixties when I discovered, that I had a really bad back. Right. Uh, when I because I got, uh, uh, called up for the Vietnam War. Yeah. And uh, failed my medical, and the the doctor said you should not be playing football. Is that right? So I stopped and uh, became a coach. And uh, fifty years ago, we won the grand final with people like Michael Cheney in my B grade Colts team. <laughs> uh, so I'm part of the uh, the scene here. Yeah, and you you got a lot of that scene when you're at university. Yeah, a lot of good friends, mm. a lot of networks mm. that enable you to uh, to not only be a stirrer, but to enable you to belong
0: yeah hmm. yeah,
2: and uh I've belonged yeah. ever since
0: relationships you've uh, i'm imagine oh, nurtured absolutely. but also maybe strained and challenged along the way
2: yeah yeah it's it's funny isn't it because you in the end you do all belong here, yeah, and you know you can't i mean Michael Cheney in the forests he he was you know running bunnings at the time and uh, and all of that uh when when we had various uh, um Uh, amazing uh, events to remember our grand final win when we (laughs) took on the world and won uh, in the B grade (laughs) column. But, you know, he's an amazing West Australian, Mike Cheney. I mean, that West Farmers thing that he Mm. did. Extraordinary creative businessman and I'm very proud to know him. Mm. Um, So he was chopping down trees and we stopped it. Mm. Uh, That was another great victory mm. in the environmental movement and uh, still remains a, a thing of great pleasure that we stopped the logging of old growth forests. Yeah. But these these sort of events through the years, um, people, you know, Mick Malthouse played a role in that when he was the coach of the Eagles. So We we got ordinary people to say extraordinary things because this is a special place. Yeah. And we love it.
0: Yeah. A good opportunity now, I think, just to take a quick break. Peter Newman is our guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR. Back with more soon.
1: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6 br Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring
0: Stories. Peter Newman, professor of sustainability at Curtin University, is our special guest. Um, let's talk a little bit more about your early uh, academic life, though. Uh, your study area was was principally chemistry.
2: Yeah, I did a which, PhD in chemistry. Yeah, uh, I, I just Why like chemistry. I like doing science. Um, I, I, in reality, I was more interested in the arts, um, things like English and history and politics and so on. Yeah. I probably would have gravitated to that. But my father was very strong. He wanted me to either be a doctor or a scientist. Yeah. Uh, my brother ended up being the medical side, uh, yep. which my father was very proud of. Um, he was a headmaster, by the way. So, yeah. uh, you know, you did tend to follow him. <laughs> um, and uh, I did that. And it was very easy to play football and cricket while doing science because mm. um, uh, it was right next to James Oval. <laughs> These things influence you. Um, But uh, I never really was a laboratory scientist that would stay there. And when I caught the bug of environmentalism and the need to change the world, I got more and more into environmental science. So I then went overseas to study it. There was Mm. only one place in the world at that point you could study environmental science. That was in Holland, in Delft. Mm -hmm. So I went there for a year and uh, did a, a qualification that, like a master's. And then I went to California and worked with Paul Ehrlich uh, as a postdoc. Paul Ehrlich was the, the, the great academic environmentalist. He came to Australia several times. He did a, f- a Monday conference, which was like Four Corners then, mm. <clears throat> except it was debate-oriented. Very inspiring guy. It was play- replayed five times across Australia, and uh, that really influenced me. And I I was fortunate to be able to go and work with him. Right. And uh, that that occurred in 1973-4 during the first oil crisis. So I was very aware of what happens to a city like in California where it ground to a halt Mm. as they suddenly were stopped getting their oil imports from the uh, OPEC cartel. And uh, the whole place fell apart. So I started to learn that cities needed their energy and uh, were very dependent on it. And they needed their cars. And yet, when I was in Delft, they didn't need cars. No. So I started to understand cities were different mm. and could be different. Yeah. And they were very dependent on energy. So that started me collecting data on cities. Yeah. So I took my scientific background and started studying cities and transport and energy. And that has been my bag ever since. Yeah. And I've written 20 books and 340 academic papers. Um, not that that means a lot these days unless you've been on social media. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, in recent times, I've got onto social have media. You? Yeah, I have, I had nearly 5 million hits on one one little uh, thing that went around the world about trackless trams, yeah, which I discovered in China, and that kind of coverage means that I'm still in the thick of things. <laughs> do you like so? Do you like social media? Not much, I must admit. I, um, you know, I, I do it, uh, and I, you know, we do all the things to keep in touch with our family and friends. Yep. I'm on all kinds of things for that, and I love the connection it gives you immediate yep. connection. But I don't seek a million followers and this sort of thing. Yeah, it's not what I'm after. Yeah, you,
0: you don't want to be an influencer.
2: Yeah, but <laughs> but in the various not camp- in that space anyway. No, no, not not influencer in the sense that you know I can tweet something uh, yeah. that's going to change the world. Uh, I'd prefer to write a book on it. Yeah, and uh, yeah. so that's what I've been doing and getting data yeah. that nobody else had. Yeah, and this sort of thing is is more solid <laughs> than social media ever will be. But social media is an extraordinary uh, communication device. Yeah, absolutely. So during some of the campaigns, like the campaign against the Row 8, which I was very much part of because uh, that really is a silly road, uh, that uh, uh, we helped to, to win that campaign. And that was all run through social media mm. and uh, everybody connected that way. and mm. So I can see the value
0: in it. So many of the things, uh, it sounds, that really captured your imagination back in the 70s. The debates are still raging today, aren't they? Everything that you mentioned there, energy, transport, yeah, climate, environmental issues,
2: they're still the things that, that dominate yep. discussion today. Yeah, I remember thinking when I came back from California and I was given a new job at the, the new Murdoch University in 1974, a lecturer in environmental science. Mm. It was my dream job, and uh, I've basically been an academic ever since. But Mm. uh, I thought, yeah, look, it'll take me a few weeks to get going on this, but we should be able to fix those things pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, what you do learn is that change that's very fundamental about the transport system, about urban sprawl, about the fuel that is used... These are very much stuck in the system of how we're running our cities and they don't change overnight. No. You just can't. But you you keep going and we have been changing. And, and when you
0: reflect on, on your mindset back then in the mid-70s, thinking, oh, where will we be by 2019? Are we where you kind of ended? thought we might end up or had you hoped that we'd moved further quicker?
2: Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody is able to really think that far ahead. You like to think about having children who will grow up and be working then, Mm. which my children are. And I now think of my grandchildren. I've got three of them, and uh, the one-year-old is the most recent. He's in Perth. So um, it's terrific to think about them and think that in 2050, when we have to have got rid of fossil fuels... He will still be working, in fact, in the middle of his working life. Mm. So, I do, you th- now... th- do you think that's achievable? Do you think we will? Well, I think it is achievable. It has to be yep. because uh, – and it's a bit like some of the campaigns I've been involved in. You can't quite see it at the time, but the more you get into it, the more you see it can be. And uh, we are starting to win on this. People like Greta, the Swedish girl – who decided to stop going to school and just sit outside Parliament and the climate emergency that she runs? She essentially says, You've got to start something, do something. Uh, well, I keep saying, Actually, we've been in it for 20 or 30 years now, and we are beginning to win a lot of things. Mm. But she probably can't see it, and and the. So has she been good for the the cause
0: broadly, look, or I'll, has she been a distraction? Do you think?
2: No, she's good for the cause. Yep. Uh, see, what I have learnt over the years is that governments don't run the world. Mm. Industry is probably more in control, mm. or where they invest, that's what changes the world. But the real driving force is community. Yeah, community runs the show they set the values they say what must happen yeah it's their demands that shape the economy and then shape the government yep and what i'm seeing is that governments and industry are now seeing they must change and Mm. they are changing yeah but it's the community driving it so greta has been part of that saying we got to do it faster Mm. and i agree yeah hasn't
0: it caused a pile on though in the media she's made herself a target Just before we get to a break, and maybe I'll ask you more about this afterwards, ever considered or been approached for a career in politics? Yes. Yes. I'll ask you more about that after the break because it doesn't surprise me that you've said yes. Uh, This is Inspiring Stories. Peter Newman is our special guest. Back with more in a moment.
1: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6 BR, Brought to you by Barra and O'Day.
0: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. Peter Newman, a Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University and many other things as we're finding out is our special guest in this episode. I asked you just before the break, Peter, uh, have you ever been approached or, or been tempted uh, to get
2: into politics? You said yes. Yes, can I you, did Can say you yes. give us the details? Look, it, um I can probably talk a bit more about that yep. now. But, yeah, I was approached by John Dawkins to replace right. him as the member for Fremantle. Yep. I had been uh, the stirrer who led the campaign that, uh, and he certainly supported. Um, so I was... Uh, I did think about that. It's quite an honour, of course. Mm. Um, but I, the interesting thing was I thought I could do more outside politics than right. inside. Uh, I do... Uh, I'm very aware of the power of politicians. Um, But in the end, these campaigns that I've been part of, they have set the agenda. And every now and then I can go in and help the politicians, and I've done that three times. I've taken leave and worked on secondment with the politicians, basically from the premiers. Mm. So firstly with Brian Burke and Julian Grill and the era when they saved the railway. Yeah. uh, and then with uh, Peter Dowding, uh-huh. and and then with Jeff Gallup, right. And I did the state sustainability strategy. Became a bureaucrat to sort of lead that charge, and uh, so I've done some things uh, in government, uh, but in the end, I like to try and help set the agenda rather mm-hmm. than deliver it, mm-hmm. and. Uh, that's it's a special skill to you're the, deliver it. You've you're got the to be a puppet master, then. Yeah, I, that's <laughs> <right. Jeez. laughs> Yeah, and and uh, certainly civil society, uh, the universities are part of that. They sometimes forget. Yeah, uh, the media is, and churches, and u- unions, and all the organisation, all the NGOs, the Conservation Council, and so on. These are part of civil society, and they do help set the agenda, and they often think they don't have power, but they do mm. because they are able to talk about ethics and, and the long-term vision for their children and grandchildren. And that's their, that's their business. So I'm very proud to be part of that and continue, have, have had the chance to continue to be that and be paid mm. uh, whilst being an academic. Mm. I mean, I've done my job as an academic and I learn from all those experiences hugely. And that brings students to me. So I've had large numbers of students working with me all the time. And that, that universities recognise as being a good academic. Not many can do it. They yeah. like to sit in the laboratory and do yeah. it. Uh, but I, I think I was fortunate and I learnt from those first stirring experiences yeah. that you can get things done. Yeah. And that brings hope. And I've been, I think, mainly an arbiter of hope that you can
0: change the world. Which is sometimes a bit lost in the in the discourse of today, isn't it? We've talked a little bit about social media, but uh, it's it's always frustrating to me when I, when when there is a, a hot topic. Let's say, you know, just for argument's sake, when when Greta, um, the sixteen-year-old activist from from Sweden, is in the news, if you get onto Twitter, you just see this back and forth. You know, the the the, the left and the right, and and you know, the extreme ends of the left and right, usually just taking pot shots at each other, throwing barbs at each other. It's hard to see anything constructive mm. out of that and and i'm you know it's it's just it's it's so predictable yeah ultimately boring uh completely futile waste of of everyone's time i think. Um, watching this go back and forth it doesn't it doesn't achieve anything all it does is kind of it 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 divides and it turns everyone into a Mm. you're one or the other it's us or them you're black and white you're left or right you're up and down you know what i mean it's just it it reduces
2: everyone down into a a binary basically yes and i do like to get on with things and uh i i don't like that barney um it's a bit like brexit i mean why would you try and follow what's going on there? It's just a it's just game. <laughs> it's too hard. It's, 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 it's impossible to follow. Yeah. So, and climate change is seen that way by a lot of people. But being on the inside of it, yeah. I do know that there is a serious issue. that yeah. it is leading to major droughts and major floods and major issues that we have to deal with. But So can I ask, when you come up against people yeah. who
0: just don't want to acknowledge that, Mm. And look, this goes right to the top of, of the tree in, in, in Canberra who aren't ready to acknowledge that it is even a real thing, mm. let alone what to do about it. I mean, you can argue about you know, yep. whether our reaction to it is, is too extreme or not, but to, yeah. to even acknowledge that it, it is a thing in the first place, and not just our decision makers over there, but some of the people who are very vocal in the media, for instance, yes, indeed. Who, who, uh, who call it a hoax. What do you yeah, say yeah. to those people?
2: Well, they'll probably look back on it and be a bit ashamed of it, but, you see, I do have sympathy for them because what they are doing is saying the world can't be that stupid that we are killing the biosphere and making it impossible for a future for our grandchildren. And when environmental scientists go to the extent of saying unless we change that's going to happen uh, I can I can see there they've got an argument but it's not right to just leave it there because you've got to be able to tell the stories of hope at the same time and say look for 20 years we have been building solar systems all over the place mm. and Perth's a classic example where now 30% of, of households have rooftop solar. They just got out and did it mm. and small industry got out and, and made it possible to do at half the price of what you could do in America. So they haven't done it. And and we have shown that you can make a city run on solar. And that's, that's what's starting to now change that whole system. And even the, the train story, all of these things, they're hopeful stories. You mm. can change the world. Mm. And if you keep changing like that, we'll survive. We will turn it around. By 2050, there will be no more fossil fuels. So we'll be on completely renewable sources of energy. Completely renewable. Yeah. And it's now imaginable. You Mm. see, we can see it. So I spend a lot of my time talking about what it will look like now because we can imagine that future with solar on our rooftops and batteries in the community that are uh, uh, establishing the grid so everybody can share that solar with electric vehicles and electric trains and trackless trams running everywhere, electric buses, all electric, all run off the sun. And industry are changing and seeing that they have to get rid of fossil fuels too, and they're getting on and doing it. Yep. So all of these things are the next economy. Mm. So we've got to be able to say it's not as though we're going to be all poor and grovelling around trying to be, find some life in a Mad Max type mm. world. It's not going to be like that. We are not that stupid. Uh, So we will create a more hopeful future. And our children and grandchildren will have jobs and houses and have a better city, a Mm. better city, not Mm. a worse one. Yeah. Um, We need to take a break again, unfortunately.
0: Peter Newman is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment.
1: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6 BR. brought to you by Barra and O'Day.
0: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Our special guest is Peter Newman, who is a, a sustainability expert uh, in the broader sense, really. Um, Peter, well, we were just talking before about uh, the need for hope. Uh, as we look forward. Um, and it always is difficult to gaze into the crystal ball and, and, and see what's in there with any kind of real clarity. Um, but what is it that gives you so much hope? I mean, let's talk about energy. And you talked about, you know, fossil mm. fuels being gone by 2050, which I know some people will say, no, nah, they'll still be here. Mm. They're still part of the, the longer term picture, perhaps the next hundred years or whatever. Um, but certainly, you know, we'll still have them in in, in 30 odd years to 2050.
2: What is it that gives you hope? Well, I think it is a choice you have to make. You can make a choice to just grovel in despair, and and uh, it's kind of cozy in that. And there's a lot of people do that. A lot mm. of scientists do it. And the do they? IPCC, yeah. it's hard to get people out of it. Um, I think it is a choice. Um, I do have a spiritual side of me. Uh, I go to church in an Anglican church and uh, every week I look to the week ahead and say, well, you know, what's in this? What can I achieve that you are going to give me to do? You know, it's sort of like I feel as though I can be part of a change process. And 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 I don't, I'm not uh, superstitious about it. I just think you need something that gives you hope from within and uh, that's how I draw that and I certainly have hope then through my family and so on who who are very close. Um, So yeah, you've got to make these choices and and then live them out and and the the hope that I see is something that I then draw into projects that I get involved in. Mm. So all the research I do these days are hope projects which Mm. are trying to demonstrate to the world that we can do it. So the White Gum Valley Project, for example, which I was in from the very start, uh, was set up by Land Corps uh, on a site to demonstrate what a future suburb or neighbourhood could look like. And it ticks all the boxes. It's carbon-free. It is beautiful. It is uh, affordable. It's got um, a lot of... Um, it's got Solar on the roof, which is shared. And the whole technology of how you share solar, not just use it for your own purpose, um, is now worked out through that. And uh, Gemma Green's Power Ledger Group that set up how to do that through blockchain. It's very smart. Then you've got electric vehicles there, plugged Mm. in and running off it. Do you drive an electric vehicle, by the way? I have a hybrid. And I just recently put in a plug uh, as we're renovating our house in Fremantle to uh, to take an electric vehicle yep. and uh, I have driven a, a Tesla or been in a Tesla which is pretty amazing and I should say Mike Hume who took me in this is setting up an eco village in Wycliffe for 400 households which will be completely solar completely electric vehicles based recycling everything and it will be uh, a part of how we will live in the 21st century and it will demonstrate it. That's mm. the kind of thing we're doing, getting up and doing mm. in Western Australia. Mm. And we can tell the world about it and be proud yep. of it. Yep. So, yeah, those, those um, changes are happening. Yep. Uh, there, there's some parts that are not happening quickly enough. Yeah. But I can see how we can get rid of coal in our grid and around the world with solar renewables, uh, batteries and electric vehicles. Because some of the knockers would say there is still not a single
0: developed country in the world that is now powered entirely by renewables. I suppose De- Denmark might be one of the the closest with their yeah. uh, harnessing
2: of wind. Yeah, um, they're, there's, they're, they're, they're actually I'm wrong. I'm just playing devil's advocate for, for a moment. Yeah, B- Bhutan, where I've just been, uh, has entirely uh, hydro. Right. Highly. Entirely. For and, a, uh, for and there are a some smallish population. Like or? Yeah, smallest yeah. population. Vancouver in in uh, in Canada, for example, is entirely hydro based. Yeah. Um, but uh, the uh, the weakness in that is that they're driving cars. Um, and yeah. they've got oil, so that's not renewable. Uh, the 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 power system is right. So the quicker you can get to getting an electric vehicle running off that, the better. Um, Have we been pretty slow to embrace that here? Slow there? to embrace electric vehicles, for sure. Norway is now 30% with electric vehicles. Yep. In China, there are uh, they're, they're getting up close to that. It's a, a dramatic uh, increase there. Electric buses, they've got the city of Shenzhen's entirely electric buses now. Um, they've got 250 million electric bikes and scooters and these new electric skateboards. And so they're all fed off um, the the, the power system. So the more renewable that gets, the more that transport system is. So I think we can do it with light vehicles. The problem is heavy vehicles. What do you do about the big trucks, the, the ships, the planes? They're using oil and we don't have a real solution to them. Electric's not working yet. The batteries are still too heavy. Hydrogen might be the solution for them. Mm. And industry are seeing that they can use hydrogen as their, their thermal source, uh, you know, like Alcoa uses natural gas to refine alumina. Uh, that could be hydrogen yep. produced from the sun. So renewable hydrogen does have a future, and the Pilbara could be exporting renewable hydrogen as a major part of our economy in the yep. future. Yep. That could be a very significant contribution. The other significant contribution we're doing, we have all the battery metals that mm. the world needs. Mm. And we, 85% of the world's lithium goes out from, from our, our mine down at Greenbushes. Uh, we are providing the next minerals for that economy and we'll provide them well ethically transparently they'll be traceable they'll be recyclable that's a commitment we're now doing so we will lead the next economy in that um but not everything can be electric and so the the hydrogen may be the solution and i think the next five years will show whether that works or not yeah and we need to be in on that one yeah um I suppose again, those who are not
0: quite there to embrace the electric car talk about the distances that we have here in in WA and whether an electric vehicle could could stand up to those uh, demands and and you know uh, uh, powering up mm. positions along the way when you you know, get out of the city particularly. Um, where is all that infrastructure going to come from?
2: Well, and, there's some now, and it's uh, it's happening reasonably quickly. There's a system in uh, in Queensland that has a rapid recharge uh, um, system that is made in Australia. They're exporting them all around the world now. Um, So I think we will get more and more of them. A lot of people will just do it at home, and that's all I think I would need. Every now and then I could go down to Margaret River or something, and uh, Mike Hume, who has this eco-village in Wycliffe, he has a Tesla that, that... he recharges at Bunbury, mm. and he does it in ten to twenty minutes, depending on how much he needs. Uh, it's a reasonably fast recharge. Mm. Uh, these trackless trams that I've been pushing—they are recharged at stations in thirty seconds. So a trackless tram. A trackless tram. Yeah, they've got batteries on the roof. Yeah. So they're electric, and they are very smart. They they run with optical guidance, so they are GPS based. So. They run like a tram, but they don't have the tracks because they're very precisely guided along a track and very quickly. So you can put in, at a tenth of the price of a light rail, Mm. the equivalent of a light rail. Mm. And we could become the centre of the Western world for these trackless trams because uh, we've discovered them, we're doing the research on them, and uh, they're giving us one to trial here. So very soon we'll get one here and we'll do this trial with the RAC and other groups and and uh, this this will really take off because yeah. it does show how we can move quickly and easily through the city down corridors as well as having the heavy rail, the metronet, going mm. right out to the suburbs. Um, but the main roads need this and it's they're better than a bus. Uh, the buses will feed into it and, and you'll be able to quickly get around and it's electric yeah. and solar, therefore, mm. could be running these trams so that's the kind of future we could have it it's uh, it's not um hard to imagine now and it is certainly um one that we should embrace yeah and have hope for, for our grandchildren in and uh and to see and be proud of the fact that perth has played a part in yeah that. what's the what's the one thing just to 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 finish up here
0: peter what's the the one thing or you know type of technology that you're most excited about for the
2: near future well, I think it's this combination of the solar battery electric mobility that can link into that it is It is the breakthrough that we st- I started to work on in when the first oil crisis came and I said we've got to get rid of oil because we're too dependent on it. Then it became a problem in climate change mm. and so on We haven't done much, but this will actually enable yep. us to make that transition yep. and have a better world yep. because of it. You're the most sensible doomsday prepper I've ever met, Peter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Peter Dibber, thank you so much for coming in and, and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. Uh, this one brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring
1: Story. You're listening to another inspiring story, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.